welcome to the Project Tempest podcast, where we talk with creators about their journeys, struggles, and inspirations. I'm CJ, and this is Edwin McRae, writer of dark fiction and narrative designer for video games. Ed, this is podcast number three. Welcome back, sir. Thank you, CJ. A pleasure to be here. <laughs> now, you've just finished a book. I have, yes. Um, Grimstone, a lit RPG Weird West novel, which awesome. I've been... Um, yeah, bashing my head against for some time. It's about, it's it's been an interesting journey that one because it's the one, it's the only book I've experienced some like massive writer's block and all of the kind of angsting that um, lots of you know every writer talks about. And I thought I was immune to, and then I wasn't. <laughs> I'm I'm always really disappointed when writing isn't just a three minute montage of me staring off into the distance, getting inspired, and then tapping on my keyboard, and then the whole thing's done. I know that's what we've been sold, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's uh, as I think as you, um, if you don't mind me quoting you, it's like um, sometimes writing feels like crawling across broken glass. Oh, absolutely! It's a, it's a thing. I, um, for me, very very broadly speaking, in my experience, there's writers who fundamentally love writing while they're doing it. They can't wait to get up and jump in and bash out some words. And there's writers for whom writing itself is psychological torture, the worst thing ever. And they love having written, but they do not <laughs> like writing itself. And I find over the years, I actually flip between the two. I'm not one or the other, but some things are really freaking hard and a, mm -hmm. and, a, and a pain. And some things do just flow. But you were saying this this might be the first time that you'd really kind of crawled through the broken glass yourself on a longer project? Yes. Um, and I... And I Actually, I appreciate that dichotomy you've just laid out because it is very much like I switch between those two types of writers constantly myself. Um, it's interesting when I'm being like paid to write, say for a game, uh, I very, very rarely experience it. Um, something about the external motivation or just, I, I think it's just the mindset that I've gotten into over the last, you know, 10, 10 or so years of doing this that my brain just clicks in and goes, right, being paid to write, let's write some stuff um whereas my own work of course feels more it's closer it's more personal and therefore you know all the anxieties bubble up but i did find once i started getting back into it then it got easier and easier and i did start to flow again and what's been really interesting is now that i've finished greenstone and i've um picked up my um small town horror novel again gore that that is flowing really nicely and i'm actually really looking forward to every morning getting up and doing my hour and it's i'm enjoying it again so nice yeah it's it's lovely to be in that place again absolutely it sounds great and and just in terms of the 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 bare mechanics of the craft which which i find people are often quite interested in mm. so i i think in our early discussions i think grimstone is somewhere around sixty-five thousand words or, or did it end, it end up longer uh 67 it managed to 67. reach yeah yeah and and so in in a in a normal writing session how many words are you trying to cover or are you covering i tend to even i, I seem to have maxed out at about between five and seven hundred words an hour when cool. i'm really flowing i can do a thousand um i know there are other writers around that manage to nail two thousand three thousand an hour i have no idea how they do it um I, and I know actually a lot do dictate and you can go a lot faster than that. I've never got the hang of it, but um, 
for me that feels about optimum about 500 to 700 where i can i'm comfortable with the quality i'm producing and um it gives me the right time to think along the way the other thing too is um i still i can't help myself with novels i'm, I'm a pantser even though i i think it might be a reaction to all of the planning and you know front-end design work i have to do for game writing and narrative design i just want to sit down and i just want to write stuff so that's probably why i'm slower too because i'm actually planning and creating uh, the concepts as i'm literally writing we're talking of course about the the fabled thing where a lot of people really like to plan out their their long-form works and then working within their outline um i think of them as spreadsheet people in the very best <laughs> possible way mm-hmm. And then there's jump on the roller coaster, jump off the cliff. Um, page one, we have no idea what we're doing. Let's get to page two. Let's get to page three. Mm. And and again, I think every writer, one way or another, has different parts of, of this inside them. But definitely over time, people end up with a preference one way or the other. Um, I think Stephen King and Anne Rice are classic, very famous examples of people who start on page one and just go with it. Yeah. And someone like James Ellroy or or even even people like James Patterson, who are very high volume writers, I think do tend much more to be sort of here is my outline and I'm and I'm fulfilling it. But you've really enjoyed just kind of going at Grimstone. I have actually, um, although interestingly, and I think this is one of the reasons why I'm. I, I keep saying this. I'm moving away from lit RPG, and then I keep like then writing another lit RPG book, but. Um, <laughs> This is, I think this is why I'm enjoying writing in the horror space uh, as opposed to Lit RPG because Lit RPG does demand a certain amount of spreadsheeting. You've got to track sure. this, the character stats. You've got to track your level ups, um, your your skill tree and all that kind of thing. So I think it's a genre that does lend itself much better to a, a spreadsheet planner type mindset. Uh, it's a harder genre to pants. Whereas I think uh, horror feels like, because it's more sort of freeform and visceral and emotional and all of those kind of elements, it just feels like a more natural place to just pants it and see see what happens next. No, that makes a lot of sense. And on the, on the days, especially with Grimstone or the weeks or the months when it was broken glass, when it was difficult, what was happening on a daily basis were you struggling to start or were you struggling to stay with it or were you just not going near the computer or what what was that feeling like uh yeah it was more like not going near the well i mean i have to go near the computer to do the the rest of my work (laughs) but it was not going near that document and um the way i got around that was that i actually just knuckled down and made it a a habit like made it a contract gig for myself so sure. so that i got back into the thing of like you know up at 7 30 around then and then make a coffee to the computer and so that eight till nine was pretty much grimstone time and i soon found that like after the first week of doing that then i looked forward to getting up and doing that and I could see the end in sight. And as I made more progress, I actually started to enjoy myself again because I was finishing the bloody book. <laughs> so, um, but it, it really took that just classic old work ethic habit, 
here's my goal i need to reach it this is how i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do an hour every day but i also made sure i didn't do more than an hour every day because i didn't want to tax that kind of fragile motivation i had or overtax it and it, it seemed to it worked nice I got that. It? <laughs> <laughs> and and then again just just before that before you got back into that groove um where had it broken down? I, I, I'm, I'm going to guess that the the early spurt, kind of getting the first few thousand words of Grimstone out, was maybe fun. But then after that, something happened. Like, were you kind of be calmed in the middle, or what? Where was the challenge? Actually, for for me, it was between effectively first draft and second draft. Um, right. So you had the whole thing in some form. I did. Um, but it was right. too, but it came out too short. It was um, like sitting at around 50,000 or no, even actually probably about 45,000. And, and I was kind of like, oh, I've got, so I'm going to have to extend this book by another at least 20,000 words. How am I going to do that? And then on the first, and this is the danger of pantsing on the first pass through, um, the, the ending was just ridiculous. Uh, it just was not going to work. So there was a, a shift about two thirds of the way through the book where, um, yeah, I kind of changed tack to a different concept and it just didn't play out. So what I had, what I was faced with was rewriting that last third of the book. And then while I was doing that, adding in all this extra material, um, and that was a bit daunting because of course it wasn't as, it was actually kind of, it was a planned exercise. I ended up planning what the ending will be and how I needed to get there. And then I pretty much had to just follow that storyline through. And again, for me, that feels like work way, way yeah. more like work. Cause that's what I do for a day job. And, um, so it lost that kind of energy of discovery that, I really enjoy with with um, pantsing out a novel. Nice. Um, yeah. It's it's really interesting to hear you say, especially when we're getting down to the the nitty gritty of, of actual word amounts. So I, I think very broadly in my head, when when I think of a novel, I think of something sixty thousand words and up, give or take, centering around a hundred thousand. When you're talking about film scripts, which is one of the things where I've spent more of my time, you're basically at twenty thousand words. And the one thing about that as a length is it's just long enough or just short enough that you can blast your way through that pretty quickly and you'll have an awful mess. You'll have a, a script that makes no sense and is full of rubbishy bits and that sort of stuff. But 20,000 words is enough that you just blast out the first version and then you go back and you start to reshape it. And, and I think it's, it's not anywhere near as daunting as having to rework a novel. Mm. You're okay with the initial thing just being, okay, this is the crap version, but we can get it out and it's the basis. But if I somehow managed to get out 100,000 words and I, and I knew that I was going to have to rework it almost from scratch, that's much more daunting to me. You get into those kind of different quantum levels of how much are we willing to just kind of throw away as the first gasp. And I guess when you get to novel length, that, that can be pretty challenging. Yeah, it certainly is. I mean, even when you're playing around with like 50,000 words versus yeah. 20,000 words, it, yeah, it does. It feels far more daunting. Um, and I, I think that's where, in many respects, writing out like a 10,000 word storyline first 
is the equivalent of blasting out that first you know um version of the script you know sure. and so that you can then start playing around with the story before you start falling in love with the details you know that particular scene that line that all that kind of thing so i, I can again i can see the sense of it um and but i have had like the last three novels have been uh well i think you know skulls of atlantis was my third one and i found that it actually just flowed really well all the way through and then my first draft from first draft to i think what third draft we we um, rachel and i nailed it down was not that different from the first draft it was just polishing it so that was a story that i felt came out right first time and i know that um you know people like lee childs that's just how they write you know (laughs) that's it comes out and that's pretty much it there's not that much editing to do or so i've legendarily heard but um yeah so i but that's the danger is that if that first draft comes out wrong um yeah it's a really daunting process to go back in and, and try and fix it I'm I'm always fascinated by by some of the the classic sci-fi pulp writers of the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Some of whom were extraordinarily high volume writers, mm. um, pure first draft, seat of the pants all the way. Um, a, a famous and unfortunate example is L. Ron Hubbard, mm. who obviously went on to found Scientology, but <laughs> um, started out as a very successful pulp fiction writer. And my understanding is he was he was at tens of thousands of words of output per week. He was yeah. just writing his pants off, literally. And and that always fascinated me that that the idea that if you could somehow get above a certain velocity, you'd just be kind of swinging through the trees and just kind of no safety net, just kind of going for it. But the instant that you stopped and thought about what you were doing, that whole thing would collapse. Oh hell yes, yeah. And it <laughs> and it is actually interesting uh going back and reading some of those books (laughs) like i remember reading was it um highland starship troopers the original novel and i was like i finished it i was like what the hell was that (laughs) (laughs) of course i'd watched the movie first (laughs) yeah yeah right and i was kind of like (laughs) so i had some preconceptions but i came out of it going okay yeah (laughs) So someone, yeah. So you go. No, please. I was just like, yeah. People working in an environment where word count and output and filling the page of the magazine for next week's printing is everything, mm-hmm. and no one is thinking about what will this read like in fifty years. That total difference of like, even even with the movies of the time, nineteen forties and fifties movies, the 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 classics that get remembered are not the movies that were being made the movies that were being made took two weeks each and Mm. they Mm. moved at a clip and they were being written by writers who were writing a script every two or three weeks and they were shot in on a 10-day schedule and it was pushed out to the theaters very quickly and that, that 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 whole pulp era across the movies and words and everything just fascinates me because it's so different now. Our, our our level of quality control and editing in professional work is so much higher. Well, I think because we now have to, it's so much harder to bubble to the surface, mm. as it as it were. So, um, like that's what I'm finding with 
like yeah, you talk about those days of like you know churning out heaps of story and even um when i was working at um shortland street as a storyliner you know that was the model we were churning out a week's of week of story then we're into the next week and then the script was like it all just sort of by week by week there's this whole process and i think they had something like a three and a half month turnaround from um story from first concept to um airing the episode and which at that time was the apparently the fastest um in the world that's incredible by the way shorten street for our wonderful international listeners a famous new zealand soap opera set in a hospital yeah yes <laughs> famous in new zealand although actually as I <laughs> it, have, is, it is pretty famous yeah it's surprising how many people overseas actually watch it um <laughs> Yeah, and but I think even at that time, so that was the early two thousands. Even at that time, um, there was still a sense that we need more content. It's just like you know yes. that that fast production, getting lots of content out there. Now we're out there and we're swimming in this vast ocean of content. I think I feel like it's time to turn the ship and and um you know start to look at okay well how can we actually make our content stand out from everything else um quality is one way to do it do it um being paris hilton is another way but you know i can't do that (laughs) um yeah so I i think the uh although that said you know there are still plenty of indie authors who are um you know fast production authors they're churning out a, a novel a month nice and um and they're doing very well because i think the audience is the you know these are like i've read some of the work and it's it's like okay if you sit say a um oh, i'm sorry Lindsay baroka but i'm going to use you as an example you sit a Lindsay baroka novel down beside say a mark lawrence novel so Mark Lawrence is who I'm currently reading. He's just a remarkable dark fantasy writer. Just um, the poetry of how he writes and the stories, how they play out. It's just it's just sheer quality through and through. Lindsay is a she's a fast production author, and I've read her stuff, and it's good. It's entertaining, um, but you can see the the sheer difference in quality, um, sure. and I you know. You can see which book is going to stand the, the test of time. But Lindsay's just got so many books. And because yeah. she, she keeps producing those and she's got an audience that loves her stories then uh, and the characters, then she's actually doing very, very well, um, you know, as, as, a, as a story business. Um, so there is a question mark over how it's kind of, yeah, is it worth agonizing over quality (laughs) you know if you're wanting to make a living as a creative is it is it worth really honing honing these things polishing these diamonds or are people happy with diamonds in the rough i don't know it's a really interesting point and i think it's um something that simon pullman who um was on the project um timbers podcast last year has also talked about if you're solely trying to make essentially the the highest quality thing especially outside of books and at the moment you're in a world where people are spending hundreds of millions of dollars to go as high up the quality bar as possible. Mm -hmm. And if you do not have the resources to do that, 
it's it's not quite winner takes all but it's damn close why are you trying when there are other relationships that you can have to your audience yeah as you say like i i still love twitch twitch streamers because a lot of leading twitch streamers are producing about eight hours of video content a day um but they're doing this by literally being themselves on camera while they play video games or do other stuff mm-hmm. so the 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 kind of intensity and quality like like you're not watching june the movie when you're watching summit on twitch you're hanging out with summit having some quality time while he basically chats away to you as you play your games and and the 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 whole thing about twitch is that you have a connection with your audience and a following very much like you um like pretty much exactly the same as you're talking about with the books and all you're doing is connecting that audience with whatever you do and then at some point hopefully monetizing it mm-hmm. and you're not necessarily saying well to go on Twitch, I have to have a $50 million quality product in the sense that the entertainment industry sometimes thinks about those things. Hmm. You just have to have something that connects with an audience. Exactly. And I, and I think um, some of those, even those big products so in the games industry where you know the, the money has been put in to make a high quality product, but they've also gone that extra step and made a... Um, an open world experience as well they're kind of having their cake and eating it like if if i look at i saw some recent stats that came through on linkedin that um uh horizon zero dawn which 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 um i'm so contrary with games it's not a game i enjoyed but um it had one million hours of playtime and no one sorry that's that's way too small it would be a billion Billion. one billion hours of playtime yes (laughs) yeah and they do that because they've got this you know um strong plot line of you know kind of choreographed scenes and high quality voice acting and and all that kind of thing but then they've got all of this open world stuff and that's kind of like the the equivalent it's like um it's a difference of having say a Tomb Raider game where you've got everything is that high quality linear experience um, at the same time as having all your kind of like rinse and repeat, reuse the assets, do a thing actually pretty cheaply out in the open world entertainment and they're getting both um, so when they are selling that game, when they're promoting that game, they're just able to offer so much I guess more in terms of entertainment because you're getting both the movie June and Summit, sure at the same yeah, time. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, which is really hard to do in, uh, say, fiction because you know written fiction because there's not really an open world uh, equivalent of fiction yet. Although, as you say, if you're a, if you're an author who's who's been putting out a lot of really good stuff over time and say you have your whatever world your your fantasy land that has a name and that sort of stuff and if there are 50 books Mm. in that fantasy land and they're not necessarily in a linear sequence although some of them might be someone coming into your world has an almost open world worth of content that they can explore and hopefully they'll start loving it so they'll buy it all Mm. and that that and that does lead you to a thing of oh i love so and so the writer i've basically lived in their world a bit and by the way i've spent several hundred dollars on them Mm. that's actually a really good point and then 
if you do have that kind of bulk of story that you can offer people then and, and you've you've fast produced it um then you will hopefully have the say i guess the then you have the financial means to then pick out an element and go right this is i'm gonna this book i'm gonna work on all year yeah nice and i can have my you know premium story set in this larger world that i've you know quickly produced and um that can be my dune amongst the you know everything else i guess nice. <laughs> it, it's an interesting point like like from 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 older examples both both lee child with jack reacher that, that you mentioned but also i i think we both probably read terry pratchett when oh, we were yes. younger yeah. and both of those are not linear like you, you you can grab any reacher book and you can grab almost any discworld book Mm. and it's an entry way into it and and both of those authors were, were considered at the time quite high volume writers i'm pretty sure terry pratchett used to release two books a year and i think lee child may have released three at times but one way or another right now if you go to discworld or reacher there's 40 50 60 books there as mm. a little universe for you to explore and the advantage i guess that terry pratchett and and lee child both had is that they've already made their worlds so they're already there <laughs> Yes. But if you're a working creative and you've got like two books, how do you get from here to there without going broke or insane? Ah, yes, broken insane. <laughs> there is the the life of the writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it is really that. Well, yeah, something's got to give at that point. And um, and if it's not, it's either quantity or quality. Sure. you know and and i guess actually which is nice it comes back to that sort of thing of um okay you've written your hundred to hundred thousand word novel and now you're faced with going back and rewriting it uh the question is do you need to or should you just release yeah. it chapter by chapter on wattpad and build yeah. up an audience with this um you know sure it's not perfect um but it introduces your readers to the characters and the world. And I think at the end of the day, that's at least that's what I'm, that's I think how we can say compare open world gaming to, um, to this kind of immersive immersion and fictional universes that people love is that it often doesn't matter what the story, the plot is or what the themes are necessarily it's about just those characters doing yeah. cool shit in a cool place that you keep coming back to it's it's a really interesting comparison to me with with the thing that was always said about tv which i agree which is on a regular basis you're inviting someone into your living room and hanging out with them and that's at the core of what tv used to be mm -hmm. and the the perceived quality difference between tv and movies was movies is a some form of very intense heightened experience that's usually about the most important day in someone's life mm. tv is oh bob's coming around i'm hanging out with bob through the little box and we and we enjoy bob yes and 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 to me that's a real thing of and and so much entertainment over over the years has actually shifted much more towards that model um especially with games because you're basically in a world like a good example would be genshin impact at the moment which is the vastly successful mm. um game out of china where most of what you do in that game is you just go and hang out 
you go and hang out in a beautiful anime world <laughs> and eventually it tries to basically start you buying gems and kind of get you onto a treadmill of paying for stuff but you can actually spend a hundred hours in genshin impact just just kind of chilling out mm. with with these characters that you like and it's really low-key and quite enjoyable and it it doesn't have the same giant heightened kind of action peaks that something like a call of duty or even a horizon has it's just a here's this world and these people that you like mm. i think that's that's a really interesting shift um and i think with you know you can achieve that with within fiction i think you can achieve that with well, in fact, that's what a lot of, say, what Wattpad and Royal Road writers are doing yeah. right now. They're just um, yeah, putting these characters and these situations in front of the readers. And it's um, uh, it's hard to sort of navigate this topic without sounding all sort of literary and arrogant. But it's like, <laughs> it, it's, this, yeah, it's the sort of story that you just want to hang out with. It's not yes. challenging you. It's not necessarily challenging you you with big questions about the human condition or it's not delving into um you know examining like um troubling historical situations or anything like this it is kind of like it's the gilmore girls of of fiction (laughs) um and I think it, there is really a place for that. Like people just like want to escape and, and enjoy themselves for a bit. And in fact, that's where most of my gaming is now. Yeah. I kind of I don't take on really big, challenging, hard games like Dark Souls. Um, <laughs> I don't tend to. Uh, I have to say, I don't tend to play many serious games that that challenge you know challenge my thinking. I just play uh, at the moment. Um, batman arkham because it's fun to cruise around and hear the joker make wisecracks and and i'm beating up his thugs it's great (laughs) it's interesting to say my my current model for for how i game and experience game worlds is is quite similar because almost all of my gaming time is with my partner so we're on the couch together and we have two systems set up but it doesn't actually matter whether we're technically playing co-op or technically playing single player one way or another we're hanging out and going on an adventure together Mm. and that's inherently usually quite low key so i um for most things with one exception that i'll mention in a moment i no longer care very much at all about mechanical challenge in games i just don't Mm. like it's there and it should be fun like i i want the basic loop to be enjoyable but i I don't really care about being able to push the buttons better. Yeah. And for instance, we we've been playing the new Sherlock Holmes games, which, which is all about you go out and you hang out on a Mediterranean Island with Holmes and his invisible Watson and you solve cases. Cool. And it's actually very close for us to sitting down and, and sort of really watching a TV show for an hour, except it's more interactive, but we're, we're not looking to have our brains expanded it's much more let's go in um really let's go on on a relaxing adventure in this space whatever it is yeah yeah and then the reverse of me though alongside that is if i do want to play something that is challenging i'll play something as challenging as possible which is why i play apex legends which is a very high bar to entry shooter where you're in a extreme test of skill against other people and i actually really enjoy that because that's a different that that to me is like playing sport 
but the middle i don't really care about that much mm, yeah i want to either chill out and have an adventure with my partner or i want to be tested severely in a blood sport effectively mm. but something in the middle which is why i've always struggled with platformers because i i generally get annoyed at having to develop the skill to be good at a given platformer and it doesn't give me enough of either thing i'm not platforming against someone else but i'm also not relaxing with my partner yes i see what you mean yeah i think i'm i'm very similar and i wonder if it's also to do with it's to do with like work life balance as well i think we both do jobs that probably take up that whole mid-core realm yeah um because we don't <laughs> you don't want to be working at a job that is like hardcore blood sport <laughs> you're like we're not we're not members of the sas um <laughs> But you know, yeah, like our our work takes up that middle section. So yeah, once we've once we've worked all day, we yeah we want one or the other. We don't want more of what feels like we did at work. And I think that's where a lot of games for me are, are sitting at the moment. They feel like the just that amount of challenge that I get at work, and I don't I don't I don't want that at the end of the day. <laughs> it's interesting seeing games as as they kind of take their place on the throne of global entertainment mm. they want more they want more from us so that i mean very early games were clearly framed as essentially mechanical arcade experiences for children yes they were they were almost always seen that way um and then even going forward i mean it's only probably the last 20 years or less that in the popular imagination games have been anything other than for children or, or even teenagers. But part of the dialogue that you get around everyone suddenly talking about the metaverse is it's gone from all oh, games, those things for kids to all oh, games, those things that everyone will be doing all the time. And so there's this expansion of the ambition of games where they're no longer just a diversion and they're no longer even just something like an RPG or something you could sink yourself into there's a point where games are suddenly expecting themselves to be all things to all people mm. and to, to literally in some senses take over the global entertainment economy. And if you have the vast outpouring of capital that has suddenly gone into a whole bunch of game ventures, the people who are providing that capital are expecting you to be trying to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no, yeah, there's, there's no reasonable return on a hundred million dollar venture investment. It's either times a hundred at least or you're out and those dynamics then shape all the things that games suddenly try to do mm. and that's where you're seeing this vast expansion in ambition and games are trying to be to some extent they're trying to fill every niche of the global entertainment space very rapidly it's because instead of making a game now they're making a world uh, yes. they're creating a virtual world for you to hang out in, which is you know very much goes back to the concepts of tron and neuromancer and you know it's, it's all that 80s cyberpunk shit that you know at the time was really attractive to me as a teenager um being bored stupid in new zealand because yes. you know suddenly i could the idea of entering these virtual worlds and being able to do all of these different things was amazing i remember reading tad williams um otherland series oh, around cool. you know in my teens and again just being utterly captured by the idea of here's this and that, that wasn't even just one world that was this like string of virtual worlds that you could travel between have adventures and some were fantasy some were you know sci-fi there was all the different ones 
and so that's what's on offer now which is yes. incredible and so yeah the model has become um can you build a virtual world where somebody can come in and do everything from uh the the genshin impact aspect of just hanging out in a nice place and having a good time um right through to apex legends into the battle arena and you know um live and die based on your awesome epic skills it's like you know that can all happen in one world one virtual world so i think it's almost like the term games is becoming less relevant to what we're seeing happening i think it's you know i hate i hate to agree with mark zuckerberg on anything but i think actually metaverse is actually a really good name for the whole thing it's a really interesting point uh, and and very well made and, and i agree one of the things you know if if you're a nerd and you look at game theory um there was a strain in in, in game theory for a very long time that expressed itself in things like the works of raf costa where you're you're defining a game very formally as essentially a rising set of challenges that spur you to achieve mastery over a task mm. And that's that 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 very kind of game theoretic experience thing where you're 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 assuming a whole bunch of stuff and it largely does relate back to essentially increasing mechanical skill. And I think that whole set of theory applies very strongly to the mechanics of a lot of games, but the broader experience that the game is providing you and the thing that the that, that games are trying to do, I think becomes much broader. Oh absolutely. And I agree. Yeah. yeah. And 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 that is that is an interesting challenge. And there's that point where again um wonderful to see facebook randomly appropriating an early 90s sci-fi term and then putting it on the on the front of every business magazine (laughs) on the planet but the idea of these these experiential worlds probably hosted on some kind of digital platform and there being one way or another linkages between them so that you don't just jump into Fortnite, but Fortnite is somehow part of an ecosystem that connects through to all these other games. Yep. And this brings me very nicely to a thing that I suspect we're going to disagree on enjoyably, awesome. which is um, alongside the, 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 there's the hype about the metaverse. There's the very detailed mechanics and difficult task of actually building essentially an interoperable game world, mm-hmm. which people like Tim Sweeney have gone into quite interesting detail around. And then behind that, there's the economy of can you create digital collectibles and currencies that have meaning across game worlds that currently is expressed as NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which to most people I think means a JPEG of an ape or something Mm -hmm. that sells for $25 million. Yes. Where are we on NFTs, Ed? (laughs) I still see the potential of NFTs. I think at its core, it is still, so just a, super quick explanation for those uh, you know listeners who are new to nfts um it's effectively the blockchain just allows you to mark a ledger that is distributed amongst millions of computers that basically says this jpeg of this board ape is yours and the difference between that and just classic copyright law is that it's truly international as in like it's indisputable that is yours because it's you know you can't no one can go in and change that easily because it's because of the distributed network i won't go into the technology because i don't really understand it myself but (laughs) so it's not you know it's 
not being influenced by the difference between, say, uh, American copyright law versus European copyright law versus Chinese copyright law. You know, it, it basically means the same. So that's that's the huge, I think, benefit of it. And then, but what we're seeing is that it's an economy currently dominated by celebrity. And that's where you get your, um, like, for instance, there's that uh, recently saw Paris Hilton in a chat show with, I can't remember his name, one of the late night guys. And um, she's a big influence in the NFT market. And she rocks out with this collage that she created, which honestly looked like the worst 12 year old girl collage of her boyfriend and her that you would ever imagine done by someone who's a 12 year old is not even particularly talented at art <laughs> and she's selling that as an nft and she can do it because she's paris hilton sure um so so there's this kind of like so people are investing in that because they believe that well the paris hilton brand will continue to grow in value so this this um picture of a ugly collage is going to increase in value and i'm going to sell it on because it's attached to um paris hilton's brand and the same thing is happening with people like gary vaynerchuk yeah sure so what's i guess interesting is that the technological potential for nfts is amazing within virtual worlds because the demand is going to grow in virtual worlds of decorating your space like if you are going to be spending every day in say a virtual work environment or a virtual home environment you know whatever your hub is then you're going to want to personalize it and you know currently the models are there that you can just buy in-game items and furnish your hub with it but then there i mean i guess there's a certain amount of like you can certain games can manage limited edition items and rare items and uniques and things like that so you can flex from your hub like you can invite people over and show them the cool shit you've got but it's limited to that single game system what nfts potentially allows is for you to bring your apex legend trophies into your metaverse um hub and show them off in your um one-of-a-kind built by some famous designer showcase cupboard you know and it's like th- that's where it all starts to come together yeah absolutely and some of the work that um i've been doing recently has i i've seen the people who are specifically trying to build that they're trying to build the kind of in-between world where you have your little apartment your virtual apartment and it is literally a showcase of essentially interoperable things mm. where you can seamlessly bring across your apex legend badge or or your ape trophy or whatever you like and and that's pretty interesting and the one thing i would say about the the interesting challenge with the law and i suspect simon pullman when he comes on again we'll talk about this is the blockchain which is basically just a giant shared database it does let you conclusively say right at on on so and so day i purchased the rights such as they are Mm -hmm. to this jpeg Mm -hmm. the interesting challenge that you still get into is the whole chain of actual real world law real world copyright law Mm -hmm. chain of title ownership doesn't actually care to a huge extent that you say and you can prove that you did a thing on a database at that date Mm -hmm. and you've had this recently with for instance quentin tarantino has been selling nfts related to pulp fiction 
But in real world law, Quentin Tarantino does not arguably own the IP around Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. And so there is a very large lawsuit brewing around that. So you get this really interesting clash of the blockchain is a really interesting thing that exists essentially in cyberspace. It's not strongly connected through to real world law yet. No. And so you, so that bridge, which a lot of people are trying to build very quickly, probably will be sorted out pretty quick, pretty soon. Yeah. But it's a fascinating thing of... so. The classic thing I think with NFTs at the moment is if we're on the level of very simple JPEG images, I buy my bored ape number 45, which is a theoretically completely unique JPEG and, and I can show that I bought it. There is nothing stopping you from copying that JPEG That's right. and selling it on a bunch of different platforms as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I don't have a lot of recourse to actually make a a blockchain-based copyright claim against you because no. there's no mechanism for that. No, exactly. There's no... Um, currently, there doesn't seem to be any regulation in these sort of no. NFT marketplaces. So, yeah, exactly. Like, somebody, yeah, can copy your board ape and even... I guess they... If they show it anywhere, then they're opening themselves to challenge. But then, again, you're going to have to try and... You have to go through the, all the old systems to try yes. and challenge and say, hey, that's mine. Um, which, you know, if, if they're in a country that doesn't even recognize international copyright law, there's nothing you can do. The, the enormous irony at the moment, which is evolving of Web3 in general. If you think of the, the, the driving impulse behind all this stuff is they want to decentralize the internet again. Hmm. The massive irony is that on almost every level at the moment, the solution for all of the issues that come up is to go right back to old school centralized hierarchies, such as the judicial system or essentially DNS servers or a bunch of other stuff. Yep. So we're, we're, we're kind of in the, the very awkward middle of shifting to a new world with, with some fascinating possibilities, but there are some real basic roadblocks that still exist. Yeah. And I, I tend to, um, I tend to be quite, optimistic on these things where almost everything that's come along especially through the internet goes through this phase you have there's the phase where it's something new and it gets completely ignored and then it gets massively hyped and a whole bunch of scammers grifters bullshit artists weird shit comes through and there's this whole phase where it just goes nuts and then it kind of explodes goes down for a bit and then emerges later on as a kind of usable part of our lives yeah. and that that type of hype cycle i think is pretty familiar I, I remember in games when paid DLC, downloadable content for games, first became a thing. And the classic example that often gets referenced is the video game, I'm pretty sure it was Oblivion, the mm. role-playing game. You could buy for, I want to say, about $5, a piece of horse armor, mm. a piece of armor for your horse. And this now seems so unremarkable. But when the makers of that game first started offering it, the howling and gnashing of teeth from everyone on all sides the near apocalypse level of fury that <laughs> yes. you would be paying for extra stuff in your games was incredible. And they went through that phase of a whole bunch of downloadable content followed after that. And some of it was crap and some of it was great and all that sort of stuff. But now downloadable content in all forms is just a core part of a very large number of games. It is, yeah. And, and with NFTs, I suspect we still have a way to go where there's a lot of scams and grifters and giant financial explosions still to happen. Mm -hmm. But there is something there. And that's kind of my my own view. I think so too. I think it's it's worth watching. Um, yeah. And um, 
I wouldn't put any money in the NFT space at the moment at all. <laughs> but yeah, it's worth watching because it is. It's um, well, I mean, even yeah, the the internet as we know it went through that within the the whole dot com bubble and everything in the early two thousands really. So um, and then it all shook down. So by sort of you know two thousand and ten, the internet kind of became a usable thing, and yeah. then by twenty fifteen it became something we couldn't live without um so i suspect you're right yeah i think it's probably going to take who knows how long for the for this um for the blockchain and nft technology and the whole the mindsets around it to to shake down um it's certainly interesting to watch but yeah i uh yeah i wouldn't be betting my shirt on it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, is, is there a world in whenever it is, 5, 10, 15 years, when you're, you're Ed McRae, even more famous writer and game designer, and you have now a series of these horror books or more of the litarpages or whatever, and you have even more of a following. And part of your engagement with your community is that once or twice a year, probably alongside one of your books, you release a set of special limited edition NFTs of some kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. to people and your fans can trade them with each other and maybe you get a slice of that every time they trade it but it's just part of your kind of um the people who love your work and actually actively want sort of more of it and more of you in that sense mm-hmm. you have some way to essentially sell collectibles to that community yes that benefits you and benefits them and they enjoy being part of it like like is that a world that you can see coming absolutely um, because that world already exists in the yeah. physical merchandising market. Um, so it makes perfect sense. In fact, it would be silly not to, basically. So it's, I think, but then again, it's it's just treating it like um, not something that's brand new and revolutionary, but just a, a yes. an extension of a merchandising mindset where instead of selling... Um, you know, a coffee mug with um, "I love Castle Rock" on it. <laughs> you you sell someone a digital coffee mug um, with some sort of cool animate, like it's a haunted coffee mug, and then they can have that in their metaverse. Um, you know, their metaverse space, and it's an NFT from you know that horror universe. But it's just a way of, I guess, m- making. Uh, it easier for people to own digital items and say it's theirs nice um, as opposed to that you know physical coffee mug which is obviously the yours because it's sitting in your kitchen and no one else can take it unless they come steal it from your house <laughs> <laughs> and that'll be interesting when we start seeing virtual burglaries well um, i mean to be honest especially in crypto but also i mean i mean virtual burglaries are are the rule of the land it's, at happen- the moment. it's happening now yeah oh my god it's um that, that is yeah um some some of the early metaverse platforms which are designed to be able to let you showcase your nfts in various places mm-hmm. some of them have already had um security challenges that are quite fascinating that's oh that's going to be a thing oh right? yeah i mean yeah people are, are yeah being ripped having their nfts and crypto ripped off all the time already and which is kind of interesting it's like again it's like we've come right full circle back to neuromancer because that's exactly what they were doing in neuromancer they were diving into virtual representations of information and stealing shit (laughs) you know and uh, it's kind of cool in that regard 
I always love that thing that, that to me at least, science fiction historically has almost always gotten the details wrong, mm. but on a macro sense, the themes have often emerged. Like it was a feature of science fiction in the 50s and 60s, especially kind of Asimovian type science fiction. There was very often one way or another, a gigantic global computer a giant mainframe mm -hmm. that could answer all your questions and would basically run the world. Mm -hmm. And right now, there's no single mainframe, but there is actually a global computer that you and I right now can access with our voice and ask almost any question of, and it will give us the answer. Yeah. Very much with Neuromancer as well. The, the actual metaphor and the way he described entering essentially cyberspace oh, may no longer apply. But as you say, all of, all of the aspects... All of the broader trends it's just kind of circling back around mm. to this thing of well yes we are going to have this cyberspace thing that is also by the way one, one of the web three things is many people are using 3d metaphors for it mm. if you think of web one web one ultimately settled down on web pages 2d web pages as the core kind and, of metaphor by which well, we not, not even really 2d text web pages yes yeah. Because it was the only and thing that would um, download properly via dialogue. <laughs> Our wonderful 56K dialogue, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then Web 2 is is much broader, but but centered much more on mobile and essentially app services. Yeah. And Web 3, a lot of the people building this stuff, they are thinking right back to what, what got discarded in Web 1, which is we think of it as a, as a physical space with dimension. That's actually a really good point. So, like, it's almost... Yeah, Web 1D, Web 2D, because even though through Web 2 you can experience 3D worlds, you're still doing it through a two-dimensional screen. Yes. You know, um, whereas three, Web 3 is breaking down that wall um, and moving into the 3D space. So it will also be interesting to see what the adoption of um, VR headsets and tech where that goes to in relation to um, these 3D spaces. But uh, it kind of, it isn't, a, it's an interesting thing. It's a challenge for, say, us who still love books and uh, who are trying to find our place in Web 3.0. It's like, what what is the place of a, a traditional author in Web 3.0? Um, I, I don't know the answer to that yet, but. <laughs> and if if I can lob a grenade on this one, one of the advantages is that the vast majority of the old publishing industry has barely got its head around Web 1 from 25 years ago. Mm. And they are so far away from thinking intelligently about this that if you're an author or a writer who just pushes forward and, and is a little bit tech forward in thinking, you're outpacing the dinosaurs frankly at a, at a at a hell of a clip yeah um it is interacting i interacting sometimes with legacy publishing is literally like interacting with the victorian era oh and it has all its charms but it's crazy because part of my life is i spend a bit of my life working with um essentially startups who are who are pretty out there on the edge of kind of what's possible and part of my life dealing with entertainment entities who are not and the gap between those two is accelerating. Mm -hmm. So part of my first thing about the very interesting question of what, what does it mean even to be a writer or author in this new world is, um, if possible, we, we need to let go of the assumptions 
and the 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 breaks that have been applied to all of these things by the people who are in those legacy industries because love them as we do they are decades behind mm. and and that gap is accelerating right. i mean if you're oh, sorry, i was just please. gonna say yeah as a concrete example i'm only just seeing now because i've been you know carefully sort of watching the self-publishing indie space for the last uh what, what rachel i started doing this back in 2017 and um only now are we starting to see traditional publishers successfully selling ebooks on amazon yeah so indies have been doing this since 2011 and it's taken the traditional publishing industry 10 years just to get their head around the simple concept of how do you sell an ebook so yeah i think you're absolutely right if we if we're looking to those dinosaur models it yeah it doesn't take that much to to get a ahead of the curve but the other challenge though is that the audience because if you get ahead of the curve yes. of the audience you tend to leave them behind and without the audience you don't make any money it's very true and, and a very good point of one thing that i always really respected the romance industry for doing to your point is um romance has always gone where their readers are they are extraordinarily intelligent mm -hmm. about this as and 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 they were one of the first um, um segments of publishing to jump into digital Ro romance as an ebook thing is is just so well established mm, now yeah far far ahead of of the people who basically win the literary prizes is there a th but but then in, in the reverse if i if i imagine a 15 year old or 20 year old now and their default assumption about how they're going to consume and engage with content mm -hmm. and then you build something around that versus what was ultimately the assumption of people born in the 19th century about what a book was and how book publishing worked mm. and if you just throw away that default and go okay if the if if the audience is people who have grown up in digital what's their core assumptions about how they want to engage with content and just kind of building out from there mm. and i think alongside that is really understanding what experience your particular style of storytelling is offering um yeah. because i see you know like long form reading and tiktok are complete psychological cognitive worlds apart like um they they literally inhabit different parts of the brain so trying to um then sell your book through tiktok it's an yeah. utterly pointless exercise, I think, because you're you're selling one experience via another medium that's offering an actually an opposite experience. So, yeah. So the challenge is okay. Be very real about what you're offering. What experience does say the long form read of a horror novel offer? Then how can you sit that within Web three point Nice. And on exactly that point, my friend, how, um, where do you see your place evolving? You're, you're a working professional writer who's done many amazing things. Where are you, where do you feel like you're headed and, and what, what if any are the obstacles or opportunities that you're going after? Oh, very interesting question. Um, I have to say that 
for me i am falling back on my you know first story love which is reading books um because of that special space it inhabits in my own life when i'm working uh, in digital spaces um creating and teaching and and doing all those sorts of things so it's a really kind of it's a treasured part of my life and i'm wanting to i don't want to see that disappear and i still see and i see it within my daughters as well like they will still pick up a good classic paperback book and read it and enjoy it if you give them enough space away from uh digital media for their their brains to calm down a little bit so i think there there is that like i still want to offer that experience to people like i don't want that to be converted into a visual medium um and even audio i think has a different effect like uh so I guess I'm wanting, yeah, I'm still being very traditional with that, but then I'm wanting to see, okay, how can I market this experience through Web3? Like, how can I actually get people to notice this thing? And that's the hard part that, I, that you know, lots of people have various ideas about, but, but, um, but marketing fiction is still one of those things that it is, is really, really hard to do. That is a that is a very very good overview and actually a really cool open question. I I'll actually close us off there. That's a really good open question that I don't think either of us have the answer to, <laughs> which I think is 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 actually a great way to end the conversation. Cool. Um, um, this has been cool. It's it's so cool having you on these different times on the podcast because we almost check in on a journey yes. and it's been a journey. I think it's been a fascinating journey and. It's really cool. I'm I'm super impressed that you finished Grimstone. Like, good on you. Oh, thank you. Um, I think we've both had our own kind of broken glass moments over the past <laughs> year, and just 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 getting to those finding points. Oh, you're like, right, I can actually make something. Good God. Yeah. And it's it's super interesting to me to to check in on those conversation about you know, what we are, exactly as you say. What does it mean if you love writing, love reading, love the experience of fiction and books in particular, but also work and live and want to make money? in a world that is accelerating very fast in mm. some strange directions. I think that's the core question, which is fascinating. So thank you. Where can people find you, Ed McRae, on the internet? On on the web threes. On the web threes. Well, I have a wonderful <laughs> web point one, <laughs> 1. <laughs> website, www.edmcrae.com, E-D-M-C-R-A-E.com. Um, and that's actually the single best place to um reach out to me and find what i do and everything like that i just i don't do the socials uh nowadays except for uh linkedin that would be one other place and just do a search for edwin mccray narrative designer and that should find me are you saying that there isn't a hidden tiktok channel with some wonderful dance videos i am saying there is not a hidden tiktok <laughs> channel no way not ever <laughs> awesome this is this has been great thank you very much Ebna Cray. cool very appreciated thank you cj pleasure to be here tempest bay wouldn't be possible without the amazing support of everyone involved including you if you've enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and consider leaving a review this helps us out a lot for more please go to projecttempest.net for access to the videos art podcast award-winning stories and much more That's projecttempest.net. See you next time in Tempest Bay.